Welcome to Musculoskeletal Clinical Anatomy. This is a podcast for the education of physical medicine and rehabilitation residents. My name is Nicole Kelleher, and I'm a resident physician in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. This program is geared primarily toward the education of residents in the PM&R field. However, it may be useful in the education for residents in the fields of internal medicine, family medicine, orthopedics. It may also be useful in the education of medical students or anybody else interested in musculoskeletal clinical anatomy. Welcome to Musculoskeletal Clinical Anatomy. This is episode six. Today we are going to be discussing the hip and we have uh, an exciting episode today. We are going to have Dr. Mark Caramore who's going to be teaching us about the hip. So without further ado, here's Mark Caramore. Thank you, Nicole. Today I'd like to talk a little bit about hip pain, working through anatomy, pathology, clinical considerations, diagnostics, as well as interventions. Much of the information within this presentation inspired by an article present in the PM&R journal, Diagnosis and Treatment of Hip Girdle Pain in the Athlete from 2016. For our outline and objectives, we will be discussing pertinent musculoskeletal anatomy of the hip involving the bony, muscular, nerves, and vasculature structures. We will review some imaging and diagnostic techniques. We will begin to create a broad differential diagnosis based upon patient's age, Pain, lo pain location, and clinical history. We'll be using clinical cases to guide us uh, in our differential diagnosis generation, and we'll touch on considerations for further management of these patients, whether that be activity modification, interventions such as injections, physical therapy, further advanced imaging, and when to refer for surgery. So we'll start with our first patient. You find yourself working in the sports medicine clinic and your first patient is an initial visit for hip pain. Your patient is a 44-year-old female who presents with a four-month history of gradually worsening right hip pain, noticeable especially with running. You ask her specific running-related questions, including mileage per week, any abrupt changes in training, pain with ambulation, as well as interventions that she has utilized so far. She mentions that she typically runs 12 to 15 miles per week, She's training for a half marathon. Her most recent long run was six miles, but that was two weeks ago. There's been no abrupt increase in training, no specific injury. In terms of pain, she reports some with walking upstairs as well as a notable pain increase with prolonged sitting. She has not tried anything for it yet, including medications. She's been doing pool running as well as some elliptical and biking, but no significant pain with these activities. In generating our differential, it's important to look at not just intraarticular sources of pathology, but the surrounding uh, structures, including bony vascular structures, extraarticular sources of pain, referred pain, nerve entrapments, and non-muscular causes, particularly in the female athlete. In looking at intraarticular causes, we can consider things such as labral tears, osteoarthritis, femoroacetabular impingement, issue of femoral impingement syndrome, femoral neck stress fractures avascular necrosis of the femoral head. Moving outward in extraarticular sources of pathology, we can consider muscle strain syndromes, tendinitis, tendinopathy or tears, bursitis, sports hernia or athletic cupalgia, osteitis pubis. It's possible that her pain could be uh, from a referred source such as facet arthropathy or lumbosacral radiculopathy or generalized sacroiliac joint dysfunction. It's also possible that there could be a nerve entrapment contributing to her pain. 
as well as non-muscular causes, including inguinal or femoral hernias, inflammatory bowel disease, urinary tract infection, nephrolithiasis, pelvic inflammatory disease, or an ovarian cyst. And I should note that this is a non-all-inclusive differential, but sort of a starting point when it comes to looking at pain in the hip. It's also important to take a look at the patient's age and giving, your, giving yourself a rough diagnostic calendar of hip problems, and this becomes much more pertinent in the pediatric population. So in the infants, we consider congenital dislocations, age 0 to 5 infections, age 5 to 10 leg cap perthes disease, age 10 to 20 a slipped capital, capital femoral epiphysitis, and then in the adult population, much more concern or consideration should be placed for osteoarthritis, rheumatoid, or avascular necrosis, and so forth. But again, not an all-inclusive list. And considering the location of the pain, we have to also remember that it can be nonspecific. The location of pain can help us with narrowing the differential. In our clinical case number one, our half-marathoner states that the pain is mostly in her anterior groin area. Looking back at our differential diagnosis list, this location of the pain helps us to narrow our focus, possibly take off some of the uh, differential diagnoses that we might have listed previously. So on our list, we can take off bursitis trochanteric pain syndrome, SI joint dysfunction, as well as some of the nerve entrapments, including superior inferior gluteal nerve, lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, to help to narrow our focus. Next, I'd like to shift uh, our attention to the bony anatomy and anatomical structures uh, of the pelvis. The pelvic girdle is uh, comprised of five total joints, two sacroiliac joints, two femoroacetabular joints, and a pubic symphysis. And looking at the femoral neck angle, it is normally 120 to 135 degrees. In situations of coxa vera, where the femoral neck angle is less than 120 degrees, the affected leg is shorter, resulting in a, in a likely valgus knee. In the opposite situation, a coxa valga, where the femoral neck angle is greater than 135 degrees, the affected leg becomes longer, resulting or likely resulting in a varus knee. In considering the range of motion of the femoroacetabular joint, consider hip flexion to 120 degrees, extension to 30 degrees, abduction to 45 degrees, adduction to 30 degrees, external rotation to 35 degrees, and internal rotation to 45 degrees. And of no internal rotation being um, the first uh, range of motion limitation or loss associated with osteoarthritis of the hip. Extending outward from the bony femoroacetabular joint, the articular capsule, which uh, is a rim from the acetabulum to the intertrochanteric crest, it encloses that hip joint and most of the femoral neck. The labrum helps to deepen the acetabulum and hold the femoral head in place. And then the ligament of the head of the femur from the tip of the femoral head to the acetabulum uh, and it is of uh, importance because it typically carries the artery to the femoral head uh, inside of it. Next, I'd like to discuss the ligaments of the hip. We'll start with the iliofemoral ligament or the Y ligament of Bigelow, which is the strongest ligament in the body, extending from the anterior superior iliac spine to the intertrochanteric line. And this ligament helps to restrict extension, abduction, as well as external rotation. Next, the ischiofemoral ligament helps to limit internal rotation. And finally, the pubofemoral ligament helps to limit abduction. Stepping away from the anatomy for a moment, we'll help to narrow our differential for our clinical cases by looking at the physical exam. 
As with any physical exam, it's important to inspect our patients first. We can take a look at their gait and note for any obvious antalgia or Trendelenburg gait discrepancies. Moving on to palpation, we can palpate iliopsoas, abdominal muscle insertion, the pubic tubercle, origin of the adductors, as well as the hamstrings, uh, as well and palpate around the greater troch area. Moving forward, we check range of motion of the hip as discussed previously. A thorough neurological examination is important, checking for any evidence of neural tension using a slump test, straight leg raise, or ephemeral stretch, as well as the associated uh, sensory or reflex changes. Finally, take a look at some of the special tests for the hip. We have a log roll test where the patient is positioned supine with hips and knees extended, and with stability applied to the knee and ankle, you rotate at the hip. The anterior hip impingement test with the patient position supine, a passively flexed hip and knee, and then the leg is adducted and internally rotated at that hip joint. The scour test where a patient is positioned supine, the hip is passively moved into flexion and end range adduction. A downward force is applied as the hip is passively moved in a circular fashion. The Faber test or Patrick's test, the patient is positioned supine, the hip is flexed and abducted as well as externally rotated, and a downward pressure applied on the ipsilateral knee and contralateral ASIS. The Stinchfield test, patient is positioned supine, actively flexing the hip to 30 degrees with resistance. The posterior hip impingement test, patient is positioned prone, and the hip is passively extended, adducted, and externally rotated. We'll jump back to our clinical case. Given the duration of the patient's symptoms, you think that it's warranted to obtain a pelvic x-ray. This lady has a cam deformity. So, our diagnosis of femoroacetabular impingement. FAI is a bony structural deformity consisting of extra bone on the acetabulum or proximal femur. Up to 30% of the asymptomatic population have been found to have radiographic evidence of femoroacetabular impingement. It's a common cause of early onset hip dysfunction, including secondary OA. When it's symptomatic, the pain is related to the abutment of the proximal femur on the acetabulum, typically occurring at end range of motion as well as during loading. Why is FAI important? If it's untreated, it can predispose to chronic pain as well as degenerative changes including labral tears, chondrosis, and then early osteoarthritis. FAI comes in three different types. Cam impingement, also referred to as a pistol grip deformity, involves extra bulkiness along the femoral head neck contour. There are some potential causes for this. It's been postulated that this could include intense femoral loading from participation in high impact sports during adolescence, as well as subclinical slipped capital femoral epiphysitis deformities. Kim impingements are usually seen in young athletic males, and of note, specific radiographic findings to be noted are decreased head to neck ratio, an aspherical femoral head, decreased femoral offset, and femoral neck retroversion. The second type of FAI is the pincer impingement. This refers to more of an acetabular-based disorder, commonly seen in active middle-aged women. It includes an anterosuperior acetabular rim overhang, acetabular retroversion, acetabular protrusio, and coxa profunda. So acetabular protrusio involves an intrapelvic displacement of the acetabulum and femoral head so that the femoral head projects medially toward the ischioiliac line. Coxa profunda refers to a deep acetabular socket. 
uh, and that femoral head in coxa profunda is not medial to the ilioischial line. The third type is the mixed impingement, which is just a combination of both the cam and pincer, and it's becoming increasingly common to find pincer deformities in hips with cam deformities. So, moving toward treatment options for FAI, we can consider observation, conservative treatments, injections. Moving forward from that, the operative interventions include arthroscopic hip, excuse me, hip surgery, and this is generally recommended when the patient is having mechanical symptoms. Gold standard being open hip dislocation, and that's in the patients with clinical signs and symptoms of uh, impingement as well as structural evidence of impingement. There's also periacetabular osteotomy. This is utilized when there is a structural deformity of the acetabulum with poor coverage of the femoral head, and then in rare cases or more severe cases, total hip arthroplasty. Being that this is a physical medicine and rehabilitation clinic, you opt for some conservative management, including a medrol dose pack followed by two weeks of Mobic, referral for physical therapy to include lower quarter stability, hip strengthening and flexibility, iontophoresis, and activity modification, which would include a limit on any running and encouragement of cross-training. Unfortunately, the patient returns to your clinic in six weeks, and she is very frustrated because she is not getting any better. What's next? Being the astute doctor that you are, you return to your differential, hoping to uncover something that maybe you overlooked previously. So you've generated a broad differential, including intraarticular causes, bony causes, extraarticular causes, referred pain, non-muscular causes. And now that she's been having further duration of her symptoms with failed conservative measures, you think it is warranted to obtain an MR arthrogram of that hip. Unfortunately, your patient has suffered a labral tear. So next, the acetabular labral tear. The labrum is the fibrocartilage ring that surrounds the rim of the acetabulum, seals the hip joint, and increases the surface contact area of the joint. The anterior part of the labrum is the thinnest in the cross-sectional area, and it's most susceptible to injury. Only the outer one-third of the labrum has an adequate vascular supply. This means that most tears will not heal well spontaneously. Additionally, the labrum is very densely innervated, especially the anterosuperior quadrant, so they can be quite painful. They're innervated by a branch of the nerve to the quadratus femoris as well as the obturator. In terms of pathophysiology, it can be caused by one large force at end range of motion or repetitive microtraumas. Lesions are typically smaller in women. And of note, in the dancing population, labral tears are more often found in structurally normal hips. Of importance with uh, the dancing population, we're looking at that repetitive stress to the hip joint uh, at extreme ranges of motion, potentially precipitating repetitive microtrauma to the labrum itself. Labral tears can present with diffuse pain in the groin, and oftentimes a patient will complain of pain uh, in the groin as well as the lateral aspect and the posterior aspect of the hip, uh, kind of cupping around their lateral hip and what is been referred to as the C sign. Oftentimes they'll report mechanical symptoms including locking, catching, giving out, restricted range of motion. On exam are hip examinations and provocative tests including scour test, anterior hip impingement test, posterior hip impingement tests can help to uh, clue us in that there might be a labral pathology. MR arthrogram being 92% sensitive for detecting tears, it becomes our gold standard for evaluating for labral injury. In some facilities, lidocaine and steroid can be injected uh, at the same time of the arthrogram, so following administration of the contrast, which can be quite helpful. Unfortunately, 
Definitive management is surgery for debridement or for repair. Concluding with our first clinical case, a few months after surgery and physical therapy, your patient is returned to running and following her gradual return to run plan, she is very happy and has completed her half marathon. Excellent job. Okay, next case, number two. The retired physician wearing a bow tie who likes to run and shoot hoops. So this is a 65-year-old male. He's had a five-month history of progressive right groin and hip pain radiating to his knee. The pain is worse with prolonged sitting, prolonged standing, and exercise. He likes to run two miles a couple times a week. He's had to stop over the past month. He likes to shoot hoops at the ACAC. That's an athletic facility in town. And he has been taking a leave at night when his pain is the most severe. He's been using a cane to offload the joint and has been going into the hot tub, which he has found to be quite therapeutic. On physical exam, he has no tenderness to palpation throughout. He has a mildly antalgic gait. His range of motion is notable for marked restriction with internal, uh, internal rotation and pain at end range compared to the unaffected side. His strength appears appropriate to age. His L-spine exam is unremarkable, as well as the rest of his neurologic examination, including reflexes. In terms of special provocative tests of the hip, his Stinchfield test is positive. His scour is positive with pain at end range of motion. And his anterior impingement test is positive. So back we go to our differential diagnosis, looking at intraarticular causes, bony or vascular causes, extraarticular causes, referred pain sources, nerve entrapment syndromes, or non-muscular causes. On pelvic film, there appears to be some degenerative changes at the right femoroacetabular joint. Hip osteoarthritis, caused by a degeneration of the hip joint, articular cartilage, subchondral bone, and joint margins. Interestingly enough, up to 80% of cases of hip OA are now thought to be a result of predisposing prearthritic conditions, such as trauma, leg calf perthes disease, slipped capital femoral epiphysitis, femoral acetabular impingement, developmental dysplasia of the hip, labral tears, avascular necrosis, chondral injury, inflammatory arthritis or infection. Of note, adhesive capsulitis of the hip can mimic the range of motion limitations seen in osteoarthritis, but will lack those radiographic findings. In further discussing hip osteoarthritis, I'd like to take a look at some of the risk factors, both modifiable as well as the non-modifiable risk factors. So first, for modifiable risk factors, we have articular trauma, surrounding weakness to the musculature, heavy physical stress, and high-impact sporting activities. For non-modifiable risk factors, it's occurring much more frequently in women compared to men. It's associated with increased age. There is a genetic component to hip osteoarthritis, as well as the risk from developmental or acquired deformities, uh, as previously mentioned, including DDH, skiffies, and leg cap disease. In grading, osteoarthritis of the hip, radiographically speaking, a grade one would involve possible joint space narrowing, subtle osteophytes. Grade two, definite joint space narrowing with defined osteophytes, some sclerosis uh, involving the acetabular region. Grade three, marked joint space narrowing, small osteophytes, some sclerosis and cyst formation, as well as deformity of the femoral head and acetabulum. And the most severe, grade four, a gross loss of joint space with the above features, plus large osteophytes and increasing deformity of the femoral head and the acetabulum. However, we must remember that the degree of severity seen on imaging does not always correlate with symptoms. 
There are plenty of times where patients will have very severe findings on x-ray and very meager symptoms as well as vice versa. So this being a sports clinic, we often deal with a younger, more athletic population who want to remain active. So what options are available for hip osteoarthritis? Well, some considerations in a stepwise progression. We typically start with activity modifications, encouraging uh, more cross-training, including pool running, using of uh, incumbent bikes, ellipticals, rowers, uh, in an attempt to decrease the load bearing through that hip joint. Next, we'd move on to physical therapy, targeting some of the surrounding musculature to provide greater stability to the joint itself, as well as work on capsule range of motion. We can encourage offloading of the joint further with putting a walking cane into the patient's hand, as well as encouraging weight loss. In terms of medications, try oral anti-inflammatories, including NSAIDs, oral steroids, oral supplementation with glucosamine and chondroitin. Moving beyond that, we can get into intraarticular steroid injections. And then it seems at times that there's a little bit of a clip. The patients basically either have to go to surgery or continue on suffering with uh, where they're at with their hip pain. Now, as we know with the knee, uh, there can be some efficacy with visco supplementation. Eventually, however, surgical evaluation is more than likely going to be considered. So what sort of surgical options are there? There's arthroscopic debridement, and this is typically preserved for degenerative labral tears. There's periacetabular osteotomy with uh, femoral osteotomy at times, typically utilized in symptomatic dysplasia in the adolescent or young adult with a concentrically reduced hip and mild to moderate OA. There's femoral head resection for pathologic hip lesions, or painful head subluxation. There is hip resurfacing for young active patients with advanced OA and good proximal bone stock. This is typically indicated for patients with proximal femoral deformity, making a total hip difficult. Uh, patients at high risk for sepsis due to prior infection or on chronic immunosuppression. Patients with neuromuscular diagnoses. So hip resurfacing is considered at times for patients who are very adamant about being able to run and be active following that uh, hip surgery. It can involve metal-on-metal -metal components, um, but patients cannot have any acetabular anatomy uh, abnormalities. The benefit of doing the hip resurfacing is there's less risk of limb length discrepancies, lower dislocation rate. However, there's more common periprosthetic femoral neck fractures. And the last component of the surgical evaluation would be the total hip arthroplasty. We're going to change gears here and switch over to softer tissue anatomy. We'll try to group these by action as well as their general innervation patterns. So hip flexors, iliacus, origin at the upper two-thirds of the iliac fossa and, and the internal lip of the iliac crest, insertion on the lesser trochanter, innervation from the femoral nerve, roots L1, L2, L3. Next, the psoas muscle, origin at the anterior surfaces and the lower borders of the transverse processes of L1 to L5 as well as the bodies and discs from T12 to L5, inserts onto the lesser trochanter, innervated directly, or excuse me, innervated by direct fibers of the L1 to L3 of the lumbar plexus. There's rectus femoris, origin, AIIS, insertion onto the superior aspect of the patella, innervation from the femoral nerve. Next, there's sartorius, 
which flexes and provides lateral rotation of that hip, flexes the knee. Origin, ASIS. It inserts onto the su superior aspect of the medial surface of the tibial shaft, the pes anserine. And innervation is provided by the femoral nerve. Next muscle, pectineus, which adducts and flexes. Origin, pectin pubis and the pectineal surface of the pubis. Inserts on the pectineal line of the femur. Innervated by the femoral nerve and it's sometimes innervated by the obturator nerve. You're called to urgently see a patient in clinic. Uh, it's a 15-year-old son of one of your favorite physical therapists in town, and she is bringing him in for urgent evaluation of anterior right greater than left hip pain. He is a avid soccer player, and he, this injury occurred following a weekend soccer tournament. He notes it was worse with running but not having much pain with just ambulation. As stated previously, it's important to consider the patient's age when generating that differential diagnosis and this patient being 15 years old it sort of opens up a host of injuries that are not typically seen in the adult population so we're sort of pointing in the direction of the avulsion injuries the anterior superior iliac spine avulsion results from a sudden and forceful contraction of sartorius and tensor fasciae occurring during hip extension so sprinting motion swinging a baseball bat this is very common, uh, or excuse me, this is very commonly occurring in younger athletes. May hear a pop or a snap at that injury. The avulsion is occurring through the physis, and uh, conservative management is key here with rest and then protected weight bearing uh, with crutches. The anterior inferior iliac spine avulsion, occurring more commonly in men than females, ages 14 to 17. And this one is um, more specifically in kicking sports during that eccentric contraction of rectus. Again, um, conservative management, rest, ice, activity modifications. And uh, with both, we kind of worry about the potential for delayed union or a loss of the reduction. All right, jumping back to the anatomy, we'll talk about hip abductors. Gluteus maximus, which provides extension and external rotation. Its origin at the posterior aspect of the dorsal ilium inserts onto the fascia lata at the iliotibial band and the gluteal tuberosity. Its innervation comes from the inferior gluteal nerve. Gluteus medius, which provides uh, abduction, abduction. Origin at the dorsal ilium inferior to the iliac crest. It inserts on the lateral and superior surface of the greater troch and innervation from this or innervation for this muscle from the su superior gluteal nerve. Gluteus minimus, which provides abduction as well as internal rotation. Its origin coming from the dorsal ilium between the inferior and anterior gluteal lines. It inserts on the anterior surface of the greater troch. Innervation is provided by the superior gluteal nerve and the tensor fasciae Origin at the ASIS, the outer lip of the anterior iliac crest. It inserts on the il iliotibial band and is innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. Next, we'll discuss the hip adductors. Adductor longus, which acts to adduct as well as flex. Its origin at the anterior surface of the pubis, lateral to the symphysis. It inserts on the middle one-third of the linea aspera, innervation provided by the anterior obturator nerve. The adductor brevis, Origin at the anterior surface of the inferior pubic rami, excuse me, ramus. It inserts on the pectineal line, 
and the superior medial lip of the linea aspera. And it is innervated by the anterior and posterior divisions of the obturator nerve. The adductor magnus, origin at the inferior pubic ramus and the ischial ramus. It inserts on the gluteal tuberosity as well as the medial supracondylar ridge and adductor tubercle. This one is a interesting one as it can be duly innervated by the obturator as well as the tibial nerve. So this is one that is commonly tested on uh, SAE examinations. And last, the gracilis, which acts in knee flexion, adduction, and tibial internal rotation. Origin at the inferior margin of the pubic symphysis. It inserts on uh, the medial surface of the tibial shaft. Posterior to sartorius at that pezanserine and it's innervated by the anterior division of the obturator. Next, we'll talk about the hip external rotators. The piriformis origins at the anterior surface of the lateral process of the sacrum, the gluteal surface of the ilium. It inserts on the superior border of the greater trochanter. It's innervated by the piriformis nerve. Obturator externus, origin at the external surface of the obturator membrane. It inserts on the trochanteric fossa on the medial surface of the greater trochanter, innervated by the posterior division of the obturator nerve. Obturator internus, origin at the internal surface of the obturator membrane and foramen, inserts on the medial surface of the greater trochanter. Innervation is provided by the nerve to the obturator internus as well as the superior gemellus. Superior gemellus, the origin ischial spine, inserts on the medial surface of the greater trochanter, innervated by the nerve to the obturator internus as well as superior gemellus. Inferior gemellus, origin at the posterior ischial tuberosity in the lab lateral obturator ring. It inserts on the medial surface of the greater trochanter. It's innervated by the nerve to the quadratus femoris. Lastly, the quadratus femoris, its origin at the lateral margin of the obturator ring, inserts on the quadrate tubercle, the intertrochanteric crest, it is innervated by the quadratus femoris branch of the nerve to the quadratus femoris and inferior gemellus. And looking at the external rotators of the hip joint, we can see the close proximity of the sciatic nerve as it courses inferiorly. This sort of leads into our next syndrome that we'd like to discuss, which is the piriformis syndrome, occurring as a result of sciatic symptoms due to extra pelvic sciatic nerve compression at that hip as the sciatic nerve is compressed anterior to the piriformis muscle or posterior to obturator internus slash gemelli complex at the level of the ischial tuberosity. And on evaluation of these patients uh, with further workup, including MRI, we'll sometimes see anatomic anomalies, including a bipartite piriformis, a variable sciatic nerve path, the presence of tumors, or even inferior gluteal artery aneurysm as a source of compression. Okay, going back to our clinical cases. Next case is case number three. This is a 26-year-old with left hip pain. The patient reports a one-month history of lateral left hip pain. The pain is noticeable when running up or downhill, as well as taking the stairs. The patient also reports that uh, she is having difficulty with crossing her leg or sleeping on that side. And then what will we expect on our physical exam? The patient endorses some tenderness to palpation over the greater troch, suggestive of a trochanteric pain syndrome. Now, it's important to note that it, the proper terminology is trochanteric pain syndrome because oftentimes the gluteal muscles that insert at or around the greater troch uh, can be 
contributing to the patient's pain in that area, as well as inflammation of the bursa itself. Treatments for trochanteric pain syndrome can include physical therapy, iontophoresis, soft tissue work, dry needling, foam rolling, and in more severe cases, uh, trochanteric bursal injections. Okay, next case, case number four, 29-year-old Olympic hopeful. Now, this is a 29-year-old, very accomplished female runner. She comes in uh, due to persistent left hip pain interfering with her workouts. She reports that it is most noticeable during her speed work, but she has been pushing through. No surprise there. Uh, she has no pain with walking around that she'll tell you about. Uh, of note, though, her past medical history is significant for tibial stress fractures as well as disordered menses. Her exam is notable for a positive hop test as well as a positive Stinchfield test. In generating our differential, we again look for possible intraarticular causes. Is this a labral tear? Is this osteoarthritis? Is this femoral acetabular impingement or ischiofemoral impingement? Could this be a bony or vascular cause or muscle, extra articular or muscle cause? Could she be having referred pain or a non-muscular cause, something from within the pelvis or abdomen contributing to her pain? Unfortunately, our Olympic hopeful was diagnosed with a femoral neck stress fracture. These are the result of repetitive microtrauma from bloating without appropriate healing of the bone. There is an association with the female athlete triad. Oftentimes, we'll hear of a history of overuse or an abrupt increase in the normal training regimen. And there are two types to femoral neck stress fractures, and it is important to differentiate between the two because the management is different. So the tension type, femoral neck stress fractures involving the superior lateral neck, those are treated with open reduction, internal fixation, and percutaneous screw fixation, so surgical from the get-go. Compression side, femoral neck stress fractures involving the inferior medial neck. Patient is put non-weight bearing and activity restriction. So tension side, surgery, compression side, non-weight bearing, activity restriction. Case number five, 24-year-old male soccer player complaining of groin pain. No specific injury, but he noticed it worsened significantly after a weekend tournament. He's having some pain with ambulation. Of note, he says that he's been having pain when he's performing lunges. He likes to exercise, after all. And his physical exam is notable for tenderness to palpation over the psoas, as well as pain with resisted adduction. In reviewing his pelvic x-ray with your attending physician, you note some mild sclerosis, at his pubic symphysis, a little bit of irregularity to the border. And given his constellation of exam findings, history, and x-ray findings, you consider him to have athletic pupalgia, the sports hernia. This is a constellation of findings, often including proximal adductor strain, rectus abdominis tear, and osteitis pubis. So on x-ray, the osteitis pubis is seen from an inflammation of pubic symphysis caused by rep repetitive trauma commonly seen in soccer, hockey, football, any running athletes. In terms of management, we start with activity modifications, physical therapy, anti-inflammatories, and in severe cases, surgical evaluation for possible correction of the abdominal wall defect. The last two cases, number one, a 13-year-old, quote-unquote, big-boned Samoan boy presents with a one-day history of acute left hip pain. What is it? This is kind of a buzzwords clinical case so that you don't miss the points on the exam. This is slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Skiffy is a slippage of the epiphysis relative to the femoral neck. It's the most common disorder affecting adolescent hips, most commonly in obese males occurring during puberty. 
The slippage occurs through the hypertrophic zone of the physis. It's caused by weakness of the perichondral ring. And our last case of the day, eight-year-old boy comes in with a two-day history of left hip pain. So think buzzwords. What's our other most common pediatric hip pathology? And this is the leg calf perthes disease. So hopefully uh, at the conclusion of this lecture, you were able to see the benefit in the generation of a broad differential and helping to determine what uh, is ailing your patient using their age as well as their clinical history and location of their pain in consideration for um, their pathology and um, some considerations moving forward in terms of treatment and management of these patients and when to make appropriate surgical uh, referrals. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Caramore. That was really phenomenal. Um, I learned so much about the hip and I hope that you guys did too. That was really a great overview of the musculoskeletal anatomy and a great differential diagnosis that should really help you in the clinic when confronted with patients with hip pain. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you join us next time when we start to delve into the anatomy of the shoulder. This podcast is not meant to represent medical advice. It is not meant to establish any standards of care, and it is not meant to be used in any testimony or in any legal capacity. Seek advice from your own physician if you have a medical problem. The podcaster, any guests, or any related entities or institutions are not responsible for the accuracy of this program.